Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has a new boss, Valery Gerasimov, the former chief of general staff. We ask who he is, how he got the job, and what his appointment means just three months after the last such change in Russian personnel. And rural Suffolk on England's east coast is gentle and flat, with a quiet, understated beauty punctuated by picturesque villages and farms. Ronald Blythe, whom our obituaries editor remembers today, was its bard. But first... Last week, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa was meant to join fellow leaders at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, in Switzerland. Instead, he spent the week at home, grappling with a spiraling energy crisis. In Pretoria, there were protests over the massive blackouts that have been affecting much of the country every day. Outages lasting up to 11 hours are chipping away at South Africa's productivity and South Africans' patience. But keeping the lights on isn't the only problem they have to contend with. In recent weeks, it's felt like South Africa is falling apart. John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent. And that's largely down to the troubles of its two largest state-owned companies. One that runs its rail freight network, Transnet, and one that is supposed to keep the lights on, ESCOM. So let's take those two in in turn then, uh, starting with the the freight company. What's going on there? Many people, even inside South Africa, haven't heard of Transnet, but it runs all the ports, the pipelines, and the rail freight networks that keep stuff going from inside the country to outside, ensuring that South Africa can export manufactured goods, agricultural products, and most importantly, mining commodities. Last year should have been a bumper year for Transnet and for the mining companies that largely pay its bills. That's because after Russia invaded Ukraine, you saw huge price spikes for various commodities, including coal, which is carried by the most profitable rail line that Transnet has in its network. Five years ago, the network carried about 80 million tonnes of the black stuff from mines in the hinterland to an export terminal on the coast. But in 2022, it will be lucky to have carried 55 million tonnes. And that gap between what Transnet could have carried and what it actually moved amounts to billions of dollars of foregone income by coal miners. And then if you think that coal is just one industry, you add up all the other foregone exports from iron ore or manganese or chrome, never mind car or fruit and vegetable exports, 
you get estimates by some independent analysts that the damage caused by Transnet is worth hundreds of billions of rand, or the equivalent of several points worth of gross domestic product. So why is that gap between what it could have carried and what it can carry so big? It's possible to date Transnet's problems back decades. South Africa has a lot of rail network for the size of its economy. And under apartheid, it was seen as a vehicle for jobs for the white working class. And frankly, any farmer that wanted a bit of rail near his homestead could get one. Such was the extent of patronage at the time. Then when the ANC, the African National Congress, came to power in 1994, it had the option to rationalize this network and just focus on the parts that made money. But the new black government and the transnet management at the time didn't do that. But on top of that, I guess, inherent weakness, you had a lot of corruption and mismanagement, which has frankly become the hallmark of the ANC. During the rule of Jacob Zuma, South Africa's former president, there were lots of dodgy contracts for things like locomotive sign, many of which never arrived, or if they did, they still don't work to this day. The legacy of corruption and poor management is increasingly catching up with the company. And on top of that, as we've talked about before, Jason, South Africa is suffering from rampant organized crime. And when it comes to transnet, that means criminals stripping the cables that go above the rail line network. So it's a kind of perfect storm that is affecting this little-known company's ability to be the crux of the South African economy. And when you say that the energy company, ESCOM, is also in a rough state, is it for the same reasons? Yes. In many ways, it's a similar story. You have corruption, cronyism, mismanagement, and the situation's getting worse. Last year, South Africans spent about twice as much time in the dark as they had in any preceding year. And the knock-on effect of all these scheduled blackouts by ESCOM is that GDP growth has been trimmed, perhaps by about 1.3 percentage points. And frankly, ordinary South Africans are increasingly fed up. The really frustrating thing for South Africans is that under the Ramaphosa administration, there have been a lot of promises made to make things better. President Ramaphosa has proposed on the rail network, opening it up to allow private operators of locomotives to run their trains. And with ESCOM, he's repeatedly said that he will make it easier for renewable energy firms to connect to the grid to meet the capacity gap that is increasingly gaping. But because of a combination of bureaucratic inertia and internal politics within the ruling African National Congress. This desperate need to add more energy to the grid just hasn't happened. And you lay a tremendous amount of the blame for the current state of things at the feet of the ANC. That's because it's in charge of the government and it has had ample time and ample warning to fix the problems at both Transnet and ESCOM. But you have a peculiar thing, and only in South Africa thing, when it comes to the African National Congress. Last week, the party announced that it might carry out a quote-unquote national shutdown to protest the blackouts being implemented by ESCOM. And that leaves many South Africans scratching their heads, saying, well, I thought you're supposed to be running the show. And yes, ESCOM is an arm's-length 
company and it's not run by politicians. But it's the political decisions not to allow new capacity onto the grid, not to appoint a functioning board at the SOE that have led to these problems. So you have this bizarre world in which the African National Congress has responsibility but is not acting and is not taking responsibility for the crisis that is increasingly enveloping the country. So what chance do you give the ANC then of, of cleaning up its act and cleaning up these utilities? Not a lot, but I am conscious that every time I come on this show, I'm increasingly gloomy about the prospects for South Africa. But I, I do think there is a way out. The government has published a vaguely market-friendly plan for the rail network. If it implements that, it should get some more locomotives on the track and more commodities out of the country. And when it comes to ESCOM, there is precedent. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, South Africa had a world-leading auction-based system to allow renewable energy to come onto the grid. At the time, people were flocking from other emerging markets to look at this system. It fell to pieces under Jacob Zuma, but it's still there. There is still the basis to take advantage of South Africa's natural position, the sun and the wind, to keep the lights on. But that will require the relinquishing of control and at the same time the taking of responsibility by the African National Congress. I'm hoping that in the end its electoral interest will be in finally shifting on these issues. But at the moment there is sadly literally no light at the end of the tunnel. John, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Back in October, we told you about Sergei Surovikin, a ruthless Russian general who was put in charge of the country's invasion of Ukraine. He didn't last long. Now the campaign has a new leader, Valery Garasimov, the country's most senior soldier. The Kremlin linked the move to a need to tidy up the command structure, but look a little closer and it seems to send a message about who holds the power. Valery Gerasimov is a rather grey 67-year-old general who has reached the top position in Russia's army. Maria Vilcek is a news editor at The Economist and writes about the war in Ukraine. He's a career military man of very few words and sparse public appearances. But since the start of the war in Ukraine, he has become more prominent. And listeners may have spotted him appearing alongside Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. During key announcements, he's usually alongside the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. But now he'll be 
even more visible as he is to become directly responsible for everything that goes right and wrong in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And what is General Gerasimov's background? So he was born in 1955 to a working class family in Kazan, which is the capital city of a region of ethnic Tatars. And in the 1970s, he trained to be a tank driver. From then on, he steadily rose up the ranks until he served as a commander during the Second War in Chechnya in the 2000s. He's considered a safe pair of hands and also quite loyal, and that has no doubt been a key feature in his promotion. In 2012, he was appointed Chief of General Staff. That's the highest job in the Russian army. And that was only three days after his ally, Sergei Shoigu, was made defense minister. Shoigu himself has no military background, and so he has often depended on the general for advice. He's described him as a military man to the roots of his hair. Gerasimov oversaw Russia's seizure of Crimea in 2014, as well as its brutal campaign in Syria in 2015. And what makes him stand out as a general besides being sufficiently loyal? Well, one thing that Gerasimov is known for is an essay written in 2013. It was later coined as the Gerasimov Doctrine by some. In 2000 words, he described a state of modern hybrid warfare, which involved subversion methods, which could be political, economic, informational, humanitarian, which would complement traditional fighting. Now, originally, this was to criticize the West's behavior in the Middle East during the Arab Spring, rather than advocating a new strategy for Russia. But the influence of such thinking is arguably evident in the evolution of Russia's own disinformation campaigns and meddling in foreign elections. And of course, the war in eastern Ukraine since 2014, that's a campaign in Crimea that he oversaw, has laid the foundation for the full-scale invasion that began last year. But still... I wouldn't overstate his role as a thinker. He seems more of a competent mediator between the informed men and their civilian superiors back in Moscow. So as chief of staff, you said that the highest job in the army up until now, what's been his involvement in Ukraine? So as head of the army during the war in Ukraine, he has been associated with some of its earlier failures. He has commanded a poorly prepared and under-equipped group of men and he's done so largely from afar. He was only once spotted on the front near the eastern city of Izium, but then he was evacuated around the beginning of May following a reported shrapnel wound. Around the time of the partial military mobilization drive, which was in September, the general was rumoured to have been sidelined. But now it seems he's re-emerged into the limelight. So if he was associated with early failures, why is he rising up now? It is a strange situation in which the chief of general staff is being brought down to head a theatre of war. And the Kremlin has billed this as a way in which it could shorten the chain of command, prepare for a new offensive and broaden the scope of its operations in Ukraine. But I suspect that actually this is a result of growing tensions between the professional army and their proxies. Chiefly, the Wagner Group, which is headed by Yevgeny Prigozhin, has claimed a number of recent battlefield successes and has become more prominent, also becoming more blunt in its criticisms of the military men back in Moscow. And so this could be a way in which the professional army could reassert its control over the operation and, through that, de facto, Mr. Putin's authority as well. Maria, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. 
1969, Ronald Blythe brought out a book called Aikenfield. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. It was an anonymized and lightly fictionalized version of life in a village in East Suffolk. In fact, a compilation of villages and a series of monologues with people there describing how they lived and what their worries were. The idea had come to him one day as he slopped through the fields in his corner of East Suffolk. It was a grey winter day, the ditches were running with water, and as he looked at the hedges and the ditches, he considered the men who had made them and how they had disappeared and their names were no longer remembered, how the only way they seemed to have left any mark of themselves was by ploughing the furrows of that clayey soil. Even in the churchyard, the wind had worn away their names from the headstones. So he thought at least something he could do as a writer would be to record the voices of country people who were still living. England was not then a particularly rural place anymore. This was the mid-60s, so... People were already flocking to the cities and forgetting about life in the countryside. And Ronald Blythe thought he would rectify that in a small way. So he had invented this village called Aikenfield, and he went there with no great hopes of getting solid information out of the people, just because they were very taciturn, they didn't particularly like talking to people they didn't know, There were more important things to do than talk about themselves to some outsider. All the same, he managed to find fascinating characters. He talked, for example, to a man called Davy, who was so old that he remembered gangs of men singing as they sighed the corn. He talked to the blacksmith, who said he could never open a church door without examining the hinges. He talked to a thatcher, who recommended hazel as the best splitting wood he knew. And to the gravedigger, who reminded him that people should be buried facing east, the direction of the resurrection, but that Parsons, by contrast, ought to be buried facing west. But life in the village was not all the continuance of traditions like this. It was also often a struggle. He talked to a young schoolmaster who was lamenting that his pupils were a pretty slow lot. He learned from a district nurse that incest was quite a problem in the neighborhood and that, particularly when wives died, men would take up with their daughters and it was seen as a perfectly natural occurrence very often. He noticed that young labourers wanting to stay on the land were terrified of losing their tied cottages if they lost their jobs. There was a real problem of rural homelessness. And he talked to a young shepherd who, although he was proud to come from Suffolk, also had thoughts of going to Australia because he really wanted a small holding of his own, something that he would possess 
rather than simply looking after other men's flocks. So change was coming very fast to Aikenfield, and it was welcomed in some ways, but in most it was rather feared. And Ronald Blythe himself had a very ambivalent attitude to change and probably gently took the side of those who didn't want change to happen too fast. He'd been born at Lavenham, and he'd stayed a very short time in school. He left at 14. His only schooling, really, was to escape from the house and go out and lie in the grass watching the clouds or speed off on his bike to explore the lanes. He was, however, lucky enough to have a mother who was very keen on books, and he borrowed quantities from the local library. So he was reading voraciously by himself, and he thought that there was no particular point in doing a job he didn't want to do if somehow by writing, working with words, he could manage to make a living. When I was a bachelor, I lived all alone and worked at the weaver's And for all the time he pursued this vacation, he lived alone. He felt solitude was extremely necessary for writers. He was keenly aware of history and everyone who had walked the Suffolk paths and lanes before him. The men he particularly thought of on his walks and felt very close to because he was a lay minister were the great priest writers of Anglicanism. They were keenly aware of the presence of God in the landscape. And by carrying all this in his head and by carrying the needs of the parishioners round to everything they needed, everything he might do for them, bearing in mind always the God who he worshipped and whom all those centuries of folk had worshipped before him. He made the landscape sacred. And it made all the people who had moved through this district somehow holy too, as the district was holy, particularly perhaps those struggling people he had talked to in Aikenfield. Anne Rowe on Ronald Blythe, who has died at the age of 100. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill, and our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste and Kevin Kaners, and assistant producer Barkley Bram, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias and Sarah Larniuk. 
Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.